Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery, I'm your host Tyler Rouse. The series' better-known instrument is back, this time looking at one of the most common instruments in the modern OR. If you've ever worked in an operating room, you may have heard a surgeon ask for the METS. This is short for METS and BOMB Scissors. The name comes from a surgeon who not only invented the scissors, but also had an operation named after him, worked with radium for medical applications, and helped modernize Cleveland's ambulance system. That's quite a lot to pack in, so let's get started in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Our subject today is Myron Firth Metzenbaum, an American surgeon born on April 1st of 1876 in Cleveland, Ohio, where he would spend his entire life. He was the fourth of nine children born to Fanny Firth, I guess that's where his middle name comes from, who emigrated from Poland, and Joseph Metzenbaum, a Polish immigrant who fled anti-Semitism in his home country. Joseph was a successful linen merchant who liked to help out fellow immigrants. The story goes that he would provide each newly arrived Jewish immigrant with a linen pack with which to start earning a living as a peddler. One heartwarming anecdote I came across was that many years after his father retired, a man knocked on their front door. He was there to repay the loan of linens, which he'd received from Joseph more than 20 years previously. So Myron attended the Adelbert College of the Western Reserve University, where he and his friends would stay after school to study chemistry. There was an occurrence where they, quote, practically blew up the chemistry department, end quote. Leading the college president suggests to Myron that he take less science and try studying a foreign language like Sanskrit. His reply to that was, quote, that wouldn't be of any use to me in medicine, end quote. So I guess he had his sights set early, and it paid off as Myron began medical studies at Worcester University in Cleveland, which would merge with Western Reserve University the following year. In just the first week of school, the students were greeted by a legend of surgery and subject of podcast 44, Dr. George Kreil. There was a shortage of house staff to cover St. Alexis Hospital in the Foundry District, Dr. Kreil told them, which is where he performed surgery. Would anyone be willing to live at the hospital for a year to assist on the wards and in the operating room? Myron immediately volunteered and would end up living at St. Alexis during his entire four years of medical school and internship. Because the hospital served a population of factory workers, Metzenbaum was exposed to a lot of trauma victims, and even as a medical student was called upon to administer the anesthesia. This led to the first of his many innovations. The typical method at the time for delivering ether was simply holding an ether-soaked sponge over the patient's face. However, because many of the factory workers were heavy drinkers, they had liver disease, and it became difficult to achieve an adequate level of anesthesia without getting into the toxic range of ether. More careful titration of the dose was needed and Metzenbaum began experimenting, looking for a better method of delivery. He implemented the so-called drop ether anesthesia, a technique where the ether solution was dripped onto a gauze mask as it was slowly lowered onto the patient's face, which became common practice over the next 50 years. While he did not invent it, Metzenbaum wrote up his experience of 650 cases in the Journal of American Medical Association in 1906. Following his graduation from medical school in 1900, Metzenbaum joined Kraus' practice at Western Reserve University as a practitioner of general medicine and surgery. And of course, he took the obligatory trip to Europe in 1901, visiting Vienna, Budapest, and Berlin. It was there that he developed an interest in the use of radium to treat medical disorders, so let's explore that a bit. First, some background. Following the discovery of X-rays by the German physicist Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen in 1895 and radioactivity by French physicist Henri Becquerel, Marie Curie discovered a new element, radium. She was working in the Sorbonne in Paris when she decided to focus on radioactivity. Curie was working with pitchblende, the unprocessed ore from which uranium is extracted. 
But the interesting discovery was that the waste product after the uranium was removed was even more radioactive than the uranium. By 1898, she and her husband Pierre had discovered two new elements, polonium, named after her native Poland, and radium, from the Latin radius, meaning ray. By 1902, they had isolated 0.1 grams of radium chloride from three tons of pitchblende. Talk about a needle in a haystack. It turned out that radium was estimated to be a million times more radioactive than uranium. Marie and her husband Pierre, who was also her scientific collaborator, coined the term radioactivity. In fact, her first Nobel Prize in 1903 was in the category of physics, which was for the discovery of radioactivity, and was shared with Becquerel. This made her the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. The second time a woman won the Nobel Prize was in 1911, by Marie Curie. This time it was for the discovery of radium and polonium in the category of chemistry, making her the only person to win in multiple sciences. She paid a price, though, dying of aplastic anemia, likely due to her long exposure to radiation. Her notebooks are still radioactive to this day and are kept in the lead-lined box. Very early on, the medical applications of radioactive materials was identified. As early as 1899, Tej Sorgren of Sweden recorded the first case of a malignant tumor of the skin cured by applying radioactive material directly onto the lesion. In 1900, Friedrich Wolkoff reported, quote, Radium owns astonishing physiologic properties. An exposure of the arm to two 20-minute sessions has produced an inflammation of the skin, which has now already lasted two weeks and exhibits the same aspect as obtained after a long exposure to x-rays, end quote. By 1903, Marie Curie's husband Pierre suggested that radium's ability to induce deep flesh burns might have potential in cancer therapy. Just a couple of years prior, two Parisian physicians named Henri Danlos and Paul Bloch showed that it worked on lupus vulgaris, a form of tuberculosis that affects the skin. Soon afterwards, it started to be used on skin cancers, especially those known as rodent ulcers, because of the gnawed appearance of larger ones, which are really called basal cell carcinomas. Because they are easy to access, skin lesions were the first applications. But soon novel methods of applying radium internally were devised for things like cancers of the throat, cervix, and prostate, which were accessible through body cavities. Radium impregnated needles were used for direct but temporary implantation. And radium's decay product, radon, has a half-life of just 3.8 days, making it possible to permanently place it in the body. This was done as early as 1926 when radon seeds were placed in the prostate to create local radiation. This is still done today, although we use cesium now, and it's called brachytherapy, from the Greek brachy meaning near. Radium salts would be given intravenously for high blood pressure, in subcutaneous injections for pain such as that from inoperable cancers, and drank as radon-rich spa water to treat rheumatism or joint pain and gout. People even inhaled radon gas to try to treat tuberculosis of the lungs. But by the 1920s, it was realized that most of these therapies were ineffectual. However, in a lesson that is probably just as applicable today, the lay public took this medical treatment that was useful in just a very few specific applications and used it for all manner of ailments. Doramad's radioactive toothpaste claimed that radiation, quote, increases the defense of teeth and gums, end quote. Vita radium suppositories marketed to men were supposed to make, quote, weak and discouraged men bubble over with joyous vitality, end quote. There was something called the scrotal radiendocrinator, which were sheets of blotting paper soaked in a dilute solution of radium salts, dried and sandwiched between plastic, then held in position by credit card-sized rectangles of gold gauze. 
If you felt the need for enhanced sexual virility, you simply wore it like any other athletic support, placing it under the scrotum at night. Fortunately, most of these products had so little radium that they didn't cause harm. But there was one exception. Radithor, a patent medicine hailed as a, quote, cure for the living dead, end quote, and I don't think they're referring to zombies here, had two microcuries of radium in each bottle, which is a lot. One man, a U.S. industrialist named Eben Byers, drank three bottles a day to relieve pain in his arm from a fall out of bed and wound up dying a horrible death from radium poisoning. Radium and rayon continued to be used in medicine for half a century before being replaced by radioactive isotopes, which are made in nuclear reactors. So what does this have to do with Metzenbaum? Well, as mentioned, his trip to Europe had piqued his interest in the applications of radium in medicine. In an article from the Cleveland Medical Journal published in 1904, he described his own experiments with uranium, thorium, radium, and their effects on photographic paper. As well, Metzenbaum demonstrated that radiation penetrated paper, glass, bone, and aluminum. The work described was surprisingly more of a basic science-type research than clinical research. He also addressed the controversy at the time, which was this. Radium gives off both light and heat for an indefinite time without apparently losing any of its weight or power. As Lord Kelvin, the Scottish-Irish physicist, said, quote, Radium has placed the first question mark back of the law of conservation of energy, end quote. By this he meant that radium seems to be creating new energy. Metzenbaum goes through a number of theories held at the time, but we now know that radium in fact does lose mass as it releases energy. It was in the next year, 1905, when a then unknown patent clerk in Switzerland came up with a formula for mass-energy equivalence. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, or E equals mc squared. <gasps> Since the C stands for the speed of light as mentioned, which is a large number, and when it's squared it's even larger, a very small amount of mass will equal a huge amount of energy. So the radium was in fact trading mass for energy, but it was so little mass it couldn't be detected. So the laws of physics remain intact. Another observation Metzenbaum makes in the paper is that radium at the time was proclaimed to be life-giving. Remember all those products. But it is in fact a death-producing agent to all living cells, animal, or plant, if applied in sufficient strength and for long enough. Here's a quote from the paper. Quote, its value in medicine is the hope that it may destroy the life of simpler cells, of germs, or of cancer before destroying the healthy cells of the body, thus leaving the healthy body cells to regain themselves, end quote, which could be the mantra of the entire field of oncology. Now, the following year, Metzenbaum published an article entitled, quote, Radium, Its Value in Medicine, end quote, which was published in the Canadian Practitioner and Review from a talk he'd given in the 1905 Halifax meeting of the Canadian Medical Association. In it, he describes his own experience with radium in clinical applications, including a few cases where he used radium to treat a skin cancer and lupoid patches, a non-healing scrotal ulcer, and to turn an old scar soft and pliable. For his work with radium, Metzenbaum was awarded the Government Medal for Research at the St. Louis Expedition. And one funny side note, when he was dating his future wife, Elsa, she was repeatedly warned by her friends that he wouldn't be able to father children due to his work with radium. Fortunately, they were able to produce two healthy daughters, Louise and Jane. So his next big impact was on the ambulance service in Cleveland, Ohio. During his training and early years of practice, Metzenbaum would often go out on Kral's horse and buggy into the poorer neighborhoods of Cleveland to provide emergency medical care when someone was seriously ill. These sections of town were not well serviced by the local ambulances, all of which were owned by undertakers. 
Now, this clearly made an impact as Metzenbaum would end up writing a paper outlining the state of emergency services and giving recommendations which were implemented by the city, essentially modernizing emergency care for its citizens. Thanks to the diligent work of internet archivists, whom I cannot thank enough for making old journals available on the internet for free, that paper from 1908 in the now-defunct Cleveland Medical Journal is available, and it made for some fascinating reading. Metzenbaum begins by describing the state of ambulances in Cleveland and throughout the U.S. and makes recommendations for its improvement. At the time of the paper, ambulance service in Cleveland was a private enterprise run by the undertaking establishment and was unlicensed and uncontrolled. Historically, Cleveland's first ambulance was put into operation by a firm of undertakers in 1879. By 1907, there were 16 firms running 21 ambulances. The only hospitals with ambulances were City Hospital and Lakeside Hospital, which did not respond to emergency calls. Some of the wagons lacked the basic necessities and the drivers were employees of the undertakers. While some had been hospital orderlies, others simply had just learned on the job. As Metzenbaum stated, many were uneducated in, quote, the least degree in the knowledge of first aid to the injured, and often a driver's only merit is his ability to drive his horse at such a speed as to bring his ambulance first on the scene of accident that he may be able to lay claim to the injured before any other driver, end quote. And the story for the attendant at the rear of the wagon was even worse. Usually they were not even an employee, but one who, quote, is simply loafing around the barn and finds delight in making the runs, end quote. Metzenbaum then goes on to explain what occurs at a typical accident. Witnesses run to the nearest telephone, most of which have a card hanging on it with some ambulance or undertaker firm's number. Because more than one witness may call, more than one ambulance may show up at the site of the accident, which not only wastes money, but also takes the unused ambulance out of service for that run, and so this can lead to drivers fighting over the victims. And Metzenbaum asked around and found out that almost all operating ambulances in the city will make a trip anywhere regardless of the distance to take the chance that they will get there first. Hospitals accept the injured not for pay, but for the experience that their house staff gain, the popularity it brings to the hospital and out of charity. But the hospitals and ambulances often developed a sense of reciprocity, which led to ambulances driving injured patients past the nearby hospital to get to some favored hospital further away, further delaying care. Metzenbaum claimed that no ambulances run for profit, as the cost of maintenance is far greater than the sum of fees for the service. So why do it? Quote, Undertaking establishments run ambulances because of the possible funeral work that comes from it, end quote. Which seems counterintuitive since the role of an ambulance is to try to prevent deaths. Some large corporations would agree to a contract with an undertaker's ambulance service with little or no cost to the corporation in exchange for funeral work with the undertaker. This also causes unnecessary delays for ambulances since they must wait for the firm's contract ambulance rather than the closest one. The paper also includes some research of sorts with a survey by letters sent to the health departments and police departments in every large city in the U.S. to find out how their ambulance services worked. New York, Brooklyn, Boston, Baltimore, Albany, Cincinnati, Detroit, St. Louis, and Chicago all had ambulance departments under the control of the police department, which would receive all calls and send the nearest ambulance or patrol ambulance. These are patrol wagons equipped for ambulance use, and they were either the only ambulances or were run in conjunction with the ambulances owned by the various hospitals. Side note, the first known hospital-based ambulance system was run out of Commercial Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, now the Cincinnati General Hospital, in 1865. From this survey, Metzenbaum found out that Cleveland was the only major city where the undertakers alone conduct the ambulance service. 
so he recommended a number of actions be taken to improve it with an effort to respect the current ambulance owners. Now here they are. 1. Each ambulance driver should be licensed, and before securing the license, the establishment must be proved fully equipped with all the necessities for the proper conduct of its work. 2. The ambulance driver or attendant should be required to prove to the Board of Health that he has a sufficient knowledge of the principles of first aid to the injured. 3. All ambulance calls should be sent to the police central exchange. The attendant here should dispatch that ambulance nearest the scene of the accident, and in case that one is not available, the next nearest one should be sent. 4. Each ambulance should be assigned a certain territory. 5. The patient should positively be conveyed to the nearest hospital, except when he expresses a desire to be taken elsewhere. And 6. The city hospital should be open to all classes of injured and this fact should be made known, and its ambulance should be required to respond to emergency calls. This was the simple concept of a centrally run service with properly equipped ambulances with competent attendants taking the injured to hospital as fast and efficiently as possible. He recommended adding police patrol ambulances, especially in underserved parts of the city. Metzenbaum was wise enough to point out that the ideal ambulance service is one owned, equipped, and maintained by the hospitals and manned by trained hospital staff, but no time should be wasted in setting up a perfect system, but rather it should be spent getting a better one up and running as fast as possible. He gave a good reason why in the closing sentence of the paper. Quote, in this age of rapid transit, swiftly moving streetcars, numerous railroad crossings at grade, speeding automobiles, electrically charged overhead wires, thousands of factories vibrating under the power of dangerous engines, these and countless other factors having great possibilities for injury to men, demand some effort to reform the city's atrocious and haphazard way of mishandling the accidentally injured, end quote. Fortunately, the city of Cleveland took up his recommendations. Okay, let's get back to some more specific surgical stuff. Now, Metzenbaum had developed an interest in reconstructive surgery of the head and neck from the surgical trauma seen at St. Alexis and trained in the clinical aspects of otolaryngology, ENT, at the Cryo Clinic, which would one day become the Cleveland Clinic. Remember, see podcast 44. In 1908, he had become a member of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and Otolaryngology and received certification from the American Board of Otolaryngology in 1910. At this point, Metzenbaum left the Crow Clinic to set out on his own. I came across some nice personal stories about his practice, which overlap with the economic hardships during the Depression. Metzenbaum was known to never refuse a patient due to their inability to pay a bill and would sometimes cover their hospital bills himself. If the desired procedure was cosmetic in nature, he would barter with people who couldn't pay in cash. Apparently, one young art student gave him a three-piece pewter coffee service in exchange for a rhinoplasty, a.k.a. nose job. Metzenbaum developed a large practice repairing birth defects such as cleft lips and palates. One three-year-old patient presented to his office with a severe nasal anomaly, which he felt was too complex for his own skill set. Rather than just sending them away, he sent photos of the child to leading reconstructive surgeons around the country for advice. One surgeon in Grand Rapids, Michigan offered to attempt it. Metzenbaum not only accompanied the child and his mother to Michigan, but actually paid their expenses. So in 1937, Metzenbaum began a series of communications with prominent plastic surgeons around the U.S., which led to the founding of the American Board of Plastic Surgery, of which Metzenbaum was, of course, a founding member. But after that very lengthy description of all of his other contributions, let's get to what he's best known for, scissors. The eponymous scissors were designed initially for use during tonsillectomies. The long handles with gently curved blunt tips 
that made them well-suited for dissection deep in the mouth also made them useful in the abdominal cavity, a fact the general surgeons soon discovered. Eventually, they would become popular for soft tissue surgery throughout the body. Metzenbaum intentionally neither patented nor copyrighted his inventions and never received any income from their sale. And speaking of sales, I came across a funny story about him attending a meeting of the College of Surgeons. He was walking with one of his daughters to a booth exhibiting surgical instruments when a young and eager salesman started displaying some of his goods. That is, until the company president came over, pointed at the instrument in the salesman's hand, and said, Those are Metzenbaum's scissors, and this is Dr. Metzenbaum. His inventiveness did not stop at scissors, but also included a submucous septal chisel, posterior septal knife, mucous membrane retractor, and flexible septal speculum. One source claimed that he invented all of these instruments because of his small hands, that he was said to wear size 6 gloves for those familiar with glove sizes. He also invented a pair of spectacles with refractive lenses that he could flip up and down for improved visualization in the OR or during a patient examination. Metzenbaum always believed that a surgeon should be ambidextrous and was able to continue to operate with his left hand after he broke his right clavicle when thrown from a horse. He also contributed to surgical techniques, most notably creating the Metzenbaum septoplasty, which he described in an article published in 1929 entitled, quote, Replacement of the Lower End of the dislocated septal cartilage versus submucous resection of the dislocated end of the septal cartilage, end quote. A long name, but it essentially was a technique for straightening a deviated septum inside the nose by replacing instead of cutting away tissue, which was a major improvement over the more aggressive methods of the day and led to a much improved appearance. Now, on January 25, 1944, Metzenbaum left his office earlier than usual because he wasn't feeling well. He had performed surgery the day before, but had had a low-grade fever for a week. His wife suggested he go upstairs and lie down, and she called the doctor, but a few minutes later found him pulseless in bed. He was 67 years old. That's a lot of information about an interesting figure in the history of surgery. If you work in an OR and you hear someone ask for METS, I hope you'll smile as you remember a bit about the person behind the name. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will look at the development and use of lasers in surgery. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>